Chapter twenty nine of Eldorado by Baroness Ozy. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in September two thousand and seven. Chapter twenty nine. For the sake of that helpless innocent. The next instant he was kneeling on the floor, and his hands were wandering over the small, irregular flagstones immediately underneath the table. Marguerite had risen to her feet. She watched her husband with intent and puzzled eyes. She saw him suddenly pass his slender fingers along a crevice between two flagstones, then raise one of these slightly, and from beneath it extract a small bundle of papers, each carefully folded and sealed. Then he replaced the stone, and once more rose to his knees. He gave a quick glance toward the doorway. That corner of his cell, the recess wherein stood the table, was invisible to any one who had not actually crossed the threshold. Reassured that his movements could not have been and were not watched, he drew Marguerite closer to him. "'Dear heart,' he whispered, "'I want to place these papers in your care. Look upon them as my last will and testament. I succeeded in fooling those brutes one day by pretending to be willing to accede to their will. They gave me pen and ink and paper and wax, and I was to write out an order to my followers to bring the Dauphin hither. They left me in peace for one quarter of an hour, which gave me time to write three letters—one for Armand, and the other two for Foulkes, and to hide them under the flooring of my cell. You see, dear, I knew that you would come, and that I could give them to you then.' He paused, and that ghost of a smile once more hovered round his lips. He was thinking of that day when he had fooled Heron and Chauvelin into the belief that their devilry had succeeded, and that they had brought the reckless adventurer to his knees. He smiled at the recollection of their wrath when they knew that they had been tricked, and after a quarter of an hour's anxious waiting found a few sheets of paper scribbled over with incoherent words or satirical verse, and the prisoner having apparently snatched ten minutes' sleep, which seemingly had restored him quite a modicum of his strength. But of this he told Marguerite nothing, nor of the insults and humiliation which he had had to bear in consequence of that trick. He did not tell her that directly afterwards the order went forth that the prisoner was to be kept on bread and water in the future, nor that Chauvelin had stood by laughing and jeering while—no, he did not tell her all that. The recollection of it all had still the power to make him laugh. Was it not all a part and parcel of that great gamble for human lives wherein he had held the winning cards himself for so long? "'It is your turn now,' he had said even then to his bitter enemy. "'Yes,' Chauvelin had replied, "'our turn at last. And you will not bend, my fine English gentleman. We'll break you yet, never fear.' It was the thought of it all, of that hand-to-hand, will-to-will, spirit-to-spirit struggle, that lighted up his haggard face even now, gave him a fresh zest for life, a desire to combat and to conquer in spite of all, in spite of the odds that had martyred his body, but left the mind, the will, the power still unconquered. He was pressing one of the papers into her hand, holding her fingers tightly in his, and compelling her gaze with the ardent excitement of his own. "'This first letter is for folks,' he said. "'It relates to the final measures for the safety of the Dauphin. They are my instructions to those members of the League who are in or near Paris at the present moment. Folks I know must be with you. He was not likely—God bless his loyalty—to let you come to Paris alone.' Then give this letter to him, dear heart, at once, to-night, and tell him that it is my express command that he and the others shall act in minute accordance with my instructions. "'But the Dauphin surely is safe now,' she urged. "'Folks and the others are here in order to help you.' "'To help me, dear heart?' he interposed earnestly. "'God alone can do that now, and such of my poor wits as these devils do not succeed in crushing out of me within the next ten days.' Ten days?' "'I have waited a week.' until this hour when I could place this packet in your hands. Another ten days should see the Dauphin out of France. After that, we shall see. 
"'Percy!' she exclaimed in an agony of horror. "'You cannot endure this for another day, and live?' "'Nay,' he said, in a tone that was almost insolent in its proud defiance, "'there is but little that a man cannot do when he sets his mind to it. "'For the rest, tis in God's hands,' he added more gently. "'Dear heart, you swore that you would be brave. "'The Dauphin is still in France, and until he is out of it, he will not really be safe. "'His friends wanted to keep him inside the country. "'God only knows what they still hope.' Had I been free, I should not have allowed him to remain so long. Now those good people at Mantes will yield to my letter, and to folk's earnest appeal. They will allow one of our league to convey the child safely out of France, and I'll wait here until I know that he is safe. If I tried to get away now, and succeeded, why, heaven help us! The hue and cry might turn against the child, and he might be captured before I could get to him. Dear heart, dear, dear heart, try to understand. The safety of that child is bound with mine honour, but I swear to you, my sweet love, that the day on which I feel that that safety is assured, I will save mine own skin—what there is left of it, if I can." "'Percy!' she cried with a sudden outburst of passionate revolt. "'You speak as if the safety of that child were of more moment than your own. Ten days! But God in heaven! Have you thought how I shall live these ten days, while slowly, inch by inch, you give your dear, your precious life for a forlorn cause?' "'I am very tough, my dear.' he said lightly, "'tis not a question of life. I shall only be spending a few more very uncomfortable days in this demmed hole. But what of that?' Her eyes spoke the reply, her eyes veiled with tears that wandered with heart-breaking anxiety from the hollow circles round his own to the lines of weariness about the firm lips and jaw. He laughed at her solicitude. "'I can last out longer than these brutes have any idea of,' he said gaily. "'You cheat yourself, Percy,' she rejoined with quiet earnestness. Every day that you spend immured between these walls, with that ceaseless, nerve-wracking torment of sleeplessness which these devils have devised for the breaking of your will, every day thus spent diminishes your power of ultimately saving yourself. You see, I speak calmly, dispassionately. I do not even urge my claims upon your life. But what you must weigh in the balance is the claim of all those for whom in the past you have already staked your life, those lives you have purchased by risking your own. What, in comparison with your noble life, is that of the puny descendant of a line of decadent kings? Why should it be sacrificed, ruthlessly, hopelessly sacrificed, that a boy might live who is as nothing to the world, to his country, even to his own people?" She had tried to speak calmly, never raising her voice beyond a whisper. Her hands still clutched that paper which seemed to sear her fingers, the paper which she felt held writ upon its smooth surface the death-sentence of the man she loved. But his look did not answer her firm appeal. It was fixed far away beyond the prison walls, on a lonely country road outside Paris, with the rain falling in a thin drizzle, the leaden clouds overhead chasing one another, driven by the gale. "'Poor mite,' he murmured softly. He walked so bravely by my side, until the little feet grew weary. Then he nestled in my arms and slept until we met folks waiting with the cart. He was no king of France just then only a helpless innocent whom heaven aided me to save." Marguerite bowed her head in silence. There was nothing more that she could say, no plea that she could urge. Indeed, she had understood, as he had begged her to understand. She understood that long ago he had mapped out the course of his life, and now that that course happened to lead up a calvary of humiliation and of suffering, he was not likely to turn back, even though on the summit death already was waiting, beckoning with no uncertain hand. 
not until he could murmur, in the wake of the great and divine sacrifice itself, the sublime words, "'It is accomplished.' "'But the Dauphin is safe enough now,' was all that she said, after that one moment's silence, when her heart, too, had offered up to God the supreme abnegation of self, and calmly faced a sorrow which threatened to break it at last. "'Yes,' he rejoined, "'safe enough for the moment. But he would be safer still if he were out of France. I had hoped to take him one day with me to England.' But in this plan damnable fate has interfered. His adherents wanted to get him to Vienna, and their wish had best be fulfilled now. In my instructions to folks I have mapped out a simple way for accomplishing the journey. Tony will be the one best suited to lead the expedition, and I want him to make straight for Holland. The northern frontiers are not so closely watched as are the Austrian ones. There is a faithful adherent of the Bourbon cause who lives at Delft, and who will give shelter of his name and home to the fugitive King of France until he can be conveyed to Vienna. He is named Naudorf. Once I feel that the child is safe in his hands, I will look after myself, never fear." He paused, for his strength, which was only factitious, born of the excitement that Marguerite's presence had called forth, was threatening to give way. His voice, though he had spoken in a whisper all along, was very hoarse, and his temples were throbbing with the sustained effort to speak. "'If those fiends had only thought of denying me food instead of sleep,' he murmured involuntarily. I could have held out until— Then, with characteristic swiftness, his mood changed in a moment. His arms closed round Marguerite once more with a passion of self-reproach. "'Heaven forgive me for a selfish brute,' he said, whilst the ghost of a smile once more lit up the whole of his face. "'Dear soul, I must have forgotten your sweet presence, thus brooding over my own troubles, whilst your loving heart has a graver burden, God help me, than it can possibly bear. Listen, my beloved for I don't know how many minutes longer they intend to give us, and I have not yet spoken to you about Armand." "'Armand!' she cried. A twinge of remorse had gripped her. For fully ten minutes now she had relegated all thoughts of her brother to a distant cell of her memory. "'We have no news of Armand,' she said. "'Sir Andrew has searched all the prison registers. Oh, were not my heart atrophied by all that it has endured this past senite, it would feel a final throb of agonizing pain at every thought of Armand.' A curious look, which even her loving eyes failed to interpret, passed like a shadow over her husband's face. But the shadow lifted in a moment, and it was with a reassuring smile that he said to her, "'Dear heart, Armand is comparatively safe for the moment. Tell folks not to search the prison registers for him, rather to seek out Mademoiselle Lange. She will know where to find Armand.' "'Jean Lange!' she exclaimed with a world of bitterness in the tone of her voice. The girl whom Armand loved, it seems, with a passion greater than his loyalty. Oh, Sir Andrew tried to disguise my brother's folly, but I guessed what he did not choose to tell me. It was his disobedience, his want of trust, that brought this unspeakable misery on us all. Do not blame him overmuch, dear heart. Armand was in love, and love excuses every sin committed in its name. Jean Lange was arrested, and Armand lost his reason temporarily. The very day on which I rescued the Dauphin from the temple, I had the good fortune to drag the little lady out of prison. I had given my promise to Armand that she should be safe, and I kept my word. But this Armand did not know, or else— He checked himself abruptly, and once more that strange, enigmatical look crept into his eyes. "'I took Jeanne Lange to a place of comparative safety,' he said, after a slight pause. "'But since then she has been set entirely free.' "'Free? Yes.' Chauvelin himself brought me the news, he replied with a quick, mirthless laugh, wholly unlike his usual light-hearted gaiety. He had to ask me where to find Jean, for I alone knew where she was. As for Armand, they'll not worry about him whilst I am here. 
another reason why I must bide a while longer. But in the meanwhile, dear, I pray you find Mademoiselle Lange. She lives at number five, Square du Roule. Through her I know that you can get to see Armand. This second letter, he added, pressing a smaller packet into her hand, is for him. Give it to him, dear heart. It will, I hope, tend to cheer him. I fear me the poor lad frets, yet he only sinned because he loved, and to me he will always be your brother, the man who held your affection for all the years before I came into your life. Give him this letter, dear. They are my instructions to him, as the others are for folks. But tell him to read them when he is alone. You will do that, dear heart, will you not? Yes, Percy, she said simply. I promise. Great joy and the expression of intense relief lit up his face, whilst his eyes spoke the gratitude which he felt. Then there is one thing more, he said. There are others in this cruel city, dear heart, who have trusted me, and whom I must not fail. Marie de Marmontel and her brother, faithful servants of the late Queen, they were on the eve of arrest when I succeeded in getting them to a place of comparative safety. And there are others there, too. All of these poor victims have trusted me implicitly. They are waiting for me there, trusting in my promise to convey them safely to England. Sweetheart, you must redeem my promise to them. You will? You will? Promise me that you will. I promise, Percy, she said once more. Then go, dear, to-morrow, in the late afternoon, to number 98, Rue de Charon. It is a narrow house at the extreme end of that long street which abuts on the fortifications. The lower part of the house is occupied by a dealer in rags and old clothes. He and his wife and family are wretchedly poor, but they are kind, good souls, and for a consideration and a minimum of risk to themselves, they will always render service to the English milor, whom they believe to be a band of inveterate smugglers. Folks and all the others know these people and know the house. Armand, by the same token, knows it too. Marie de Marmontel and her brother are there, and several others. The old Comte de Lesardières, the Abbé de Firmont, their names spell suffering, loyalty, and hopelessness. I was lucky enough to convey them safely to that hidden shelter. They trust me implicitly, dear heart. They are waiting for me there, trusting in my promise to them. Dear heart, you will go, will you not? Yes, Percy, I will go, I have promised. Folks has some certificates of safety by him, and the old clothes-dealer will supply the necessary disguises. He has a covered cart which he uses for his business, and which you can borrow from him. Folks will drive the little party to Achard's farm in Saint-Germain, where other members of the League should be in waiting for the final journey to England. Folks will know how to arrange for everything. He was always my most able lieutenant. Once everything is organized, he can appoint Hastings to lead the party. But you, dear heart, must do as you wish. Achard's farm would be a safe retreat for you and for Folks, if—I know, I know, dear, he added with infinite tenderness. See, I do not even suggest that you should leave me. Folks will be with you, and I know that neither he nor you would go even if I commanded. Either Achard's farm, or even the house in the Rue de Charon, would be quite safe for you, dear, under Folks' protection, until the time when I myself can carry you back, you, my precious burden, to England in my own arms, or until— Hush, dear heart, he entreated, smothering with a passionate kiss the low moan of pain which had escaped her lips. It is all in God's hands now. I am in a tight corner, tighter than ever I have been before, but I am not dead yet, and those brutes have not yet paid the full price for my life. Tell me, dear heart, that you have understood, that you will do all that I asked. Tell me again, my dear, dear love. It is the very essence of life to hear your sweet lips murmur this promise now. And for the third time she reiterated firmly, I have understood every word that you said to me, Percy, and I promise on your precious life to do what you ask. 
He sighed a deep sigh of satisfaction, and even at that moment there came from the guard-room beyond the sound of a harsh voice saying peremptorily, "'That half-hour is nearly over, Sergeant. Tis time you interfered.' Three minutes more, citizen,' was the curt reply. Three minutes, you devils!' murmured Blakeney between set teeth, whilst a sudden light, which even Marguerite's keen gaze failed to interpret, leapt into his eyes. Then he pressed the third letter into her hand. Once more his close, intent gaze compelled hers. Their faces were close one to the other, so near to him did he draw her, so tightly did he hold her to him. The paper was in her hand, and his fingers were pressed firmly on hers. "'Put this in your kerchief, my beloved,' he whispered. "'Let it rest on your exquisite bosom, where I so love to pillow my head. Keep it there until the last hour, when it seems to you that nothing more can come between me and shame. Hush, dear!' he added, with passionate tenderness, checking the hot protest that at the word shame had sprung to her lips. I cannot explain more fully now. I do not know what may happen. I am only a man, and who knows what subtle devilry those brutes might not devise for bringing the untamed adventurer to his knees. For the next ten days the Dauphin will be on the high roads of France on his way to safety. Every stage of his journey will be known to me. I can, from between these four walls, follow him and his escort step by step. Well, dear, I am but a man already brought to shameful weakness by mere physical discomfort the want of sleep, such a trifle after all. But in case my reason tottered, God knows what I might do. Then give this packet to folks. It contains my final instructions, and he will know how to act. Promise me, dear heart, that you will not open the packet unless—unless mine own dishonour seems to you imminent, unless I have yielded to these brutes in this prison, and sent folks or one of the others orders to exchange the Dauphin's life for mine. Then, when mine own handwriting hath proclaimed me a coward, then, and then only, give this packet to folks. Promise me that, and also that when you and he have mastered its contents, you will act exactly as I have commanded. Promise me that, dear, in your own sweet name, which may God bless, and in that of folks, our loyal friend." Through the sobs that well-nigh choked her, she murmured the promise he desired. His voice had grown hoarser and more spent with the inevitable reaction after the long and sustained effort, but the vigour of the spirit was untouched, the fervour the enthusiasm. "'Dear heart,' he murmured, "'do not look on me with those dear, scared eyes of yours. If there is aught that puzzles you in what I said, try and trust me a little while longer. Remember, I must save the Dauphin at all costs. Mine honour is bound with his safety. What happens to me after that matters but little. Yet I wish to live for your dear sake.' He drew a long breath which had naught of weariness in it. The haggard look had completely vanished from his face. The eyes were lighted up from within. The very soul of reckless daring and immortal gaiety illumined his whole personality. "'Do not look so sad, little woman,' he said with a strange and sudden recrudescence of power. "'Those demmed murderers have not got me yet—even now.' Then he went down like a log. The effort had been too prolonged. Weakened nature reasserted her rights, and he lost consciousness. Marguerite, helpless and almost distraught with grief, had yet the strength of mind not to call for assistance. She pillowed the loved one's head upon her breast, she kissed the dear tired eyes, the poor throbbing temples. The unutterable pathos of seeing this man, who was always the personification of extreme vitality, energy, and boundless endurance and pluck, lying thus helpless like a tired child in her arms, was perhaps the saddest moment of this day of sorrow. But in her trust she never wavered for one instant. Much that he had said had puzzled her, 
but the word shame, coming from his own lips as a comment on himself, never caused her the slightest pang of fear. She had quickly hidden the tiny packet in her kerchief. She would act point by point, exactly as he had ordered her to do, and she knew that folks would never waver either. Her heart ached well nigh to breaking point. That which she could not understand had increased her anguish tenfold. If she could only have given way to tears, she could have borne this final agony more easily. But the solace of tears was not for her, when those loved eyes once more opened to consciousness, they should see hers glowing with courage and determination. There had been silence for a few minutes in the little cell. The soldiery outside, inured to their hideous duty, thought, no doubt, that the time had come for them to interfere. The iron bar was raised and thrown back with a loud crash. The butt-ends of muskets were grounded against the floor, and two soldiers made noisy eruption into the cell. "'Hola, citizen! Wake up!' shouted one of the men. "'You have not told us yet what you have done with Capet!' Marguerite uttered a cry of horror. Instinctively her arms were interposed between the unconscious man and these inhuman creatures, with a beautiful gesture of protecting motherhood. "'He has fainted,' she said, her voice quivering with indignation. "'My God, are you devils that you have not one spark of manhood in you?' The men shrugged their shoulders, and both laughed brutally. They had seen worse sights than these, since they served a republic that ruled by bloodshed and by terror. They were own brothers in callousness and cruelty to those men who on this selfsame spot a few months ago had watched the daily agony of a martyred queen, or to those who had rushed into the Abbey prison on that awful day in September, and at a word from their infamous leaders had put eighty defenceless prisoners, men, women, and children, to the sword. "'Tell him to say what he has done with Capet,' said one of the soldiers now, and this rough command was accompanied with a coarse jest that sent the blood flaring up into Marguerite's pale cheeks. The brutal laugh, the coarse words which accompanied it, the insult flung at Marguerite, had penetrated to Blakeney's slowly returning consciousness. With sudden strength that appeared almost supernatural, he jumped to his feet, and before any of the others could interfere, he had, with clenched fist, struck the soldier a full blow on the mouth. The man staggered back with a curse. The other shouted for help. In a moment the narrow place swarmed with soldiers. Marguerite was roughly torn away from the prisoner's side, and thrust into the far corner of the cell, from where she only saw a confused mass of blue coats and white belts, and, towering for one brief moment above what seemed to her fevered fancy like a veritable sea of heads, the pale face of her husband, with wide dilated eyes, searching the gloom for hers. "'Remember!' he shouted and his voice, for that brief moment, rang out clear and sharp above the din. Then he disappeared behind the wall of glistening bayonets, of blue coats and uplifted arms. Mercifully for her she remembered nothing more very clearly. She felt herself being dragged out of the cell, the iron bar being thrust down behind her with a loud clang. Then, in a vague, dreamy state of semi-unconsciousness, she saw the heavy bolts being drawn back from the outer door, heard the grating of the key in the monumental lock, and the next moment, a breath of fresh air brought the sensation of renewed life into her. End of chapter 29